Welcome to the Fearless Warrior Podcast. This is a place where truth is shared, taboos are disrupted, secrets are revealed, and power is gained. I'm your host, Danny Tamras, and it is my personal mission to empower women in becoming the best version of themselves. Each week, I'm bringing you inspiring guests to help you build your confidence and mental toughness so that you can live the life of your dreams. Welcome to the next episode of the Fearless Warrior Podcast. This is Danny Temras, your host, where it's my role to uncover the winning strategies of successful entrepreneurs, athletes, business professionals, for you to replicate and strengthen your mental toughness so that you can finally live the life of your dreams. My guest for today's show is Rhonda Rasich. Rhonda is an American professional racquetball player and motivational speaker who has given hope and inspiration to thousands of people around the globe through her story of survival and victory, which was built upon her determination and belief that nothing can keep you down. Rhonda is the number one world champion in racquetball for four consecutive seasons, 11 times national singles champion, four times US Open champion. She was voted 11 times the athlete of the year. The list goes on. Today, Rhonda's mission is to empower as many people as possible through her story and share the message of hope that nothing can hold you down unless you let it. In this episode, we talk about Rhonda's path to becoming a professional racquetball player, key principles, beliefs, and mindsets that have helped her win world championships. We also talk about her experience of being brutally assaulted in 2008, how she rose above to more victories since then. This is incredibly raw, moving, honest, and open conversation. Rhonda opens up in detail about her life experiences, including some of the biggest lessons that her dad has passed on her. There's so much we can learn from Rhonda. Please listen carefully and take notes. If you love what you hear, please share this episode with your friends and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcast. This makes a huge difference in helping others find this show more easily. Additionally, don't forget to sign up for my weekly email on daniellatemras.com so that you never miss a new episode. And now, let's dive into the interview. Rhonda, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is a tremendous opportunity. I really appreciate it. We're very thrilled to have you. Thank you for taking the time. I've gotten to know you as this wonderful human being and also a world champion. And yet, when I meet you, I just see a very humble and hardworking person and wonderful woman. So it would be just really good to learn a little bit more about your upbringing, your childhood, and how you got into sports, how you got into racquetball. I think I was kind of born into it, I guess. I mean, racquetball, as far as sports go in itself, is is very young uh, compared to a lot of other major sports. Racquetball just kind of was invented in, I want to say, the late 60s or early 70s. So both of my parents were very athletic. My dad came from a very athletic family. My father was the oldest of five boys, and he played pro baseball for two years and semi-pro basketball. The next younger brother was uh, my uncle, Tim. He also played a couple of years of pro baseball, and then he started the family and started his own business and whatnot in Northern Arizona. Next was my uncle, David. He went on to play professional baseball and has a World Series ring with the Yankees. Then my uncle Gary, who 
went on to play baseball as well. He's got a World Series with the uh, Red Sox. And then my uncle Robbie, who actually played football in college, he still holds the record for the longest punt at the University of Miami. Then he punted for the Chargers. And then after that, he became a professional golfer. My mom is also very athletic, although her family dynamic was a little different. Her parents weren't too supportive of that because, you know, in their day, women didn't play sports. So they frowned upon that with her. She had an older brother and a younger brother who both played football and then went on into the Navy. But my mom played a little bit of everything, not necessarily against her parents' wishes, but they just weren't supportive. You know, like if she had soccer practice, they wouldn't drive her to it. Uh, She had to get a hitch ride from a friend. But my mom was super athletic. My mom ran track. She played tennis when I was a kid and she was really good. She was like, could have been pro if she had support and coaching and whatnot. But as far as, you know, raw talent, she was, I'm realizing now, you know, how good she was back then. She also played a little basketball here and there. Um, Very athletic family. In fact, I'm a little upset with my mom just recently, like within the last year or two, I found out she won many state championships. And the only person that she kind of had like a rivalry with was someone who, ended up going on to win gold medals in the Olympics for track. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, you were, <laughs> you were beating an, an Olympic gold medalist and you didn't go into the Olympics? I'm like, why am I just not finding this out? So uh, my mom will attest to this. I was running, jumping, kicking, throwing, shooting, hitting, swinging in the womb, her, her poor rib cage. But uh, I don't think that there was any question I was going to be an athlete in one way or another. I think I, that was <laughs> ordained far before I was ever conceived. Definitely with the lineup of your uncles and the whole family of being so successful in sports. Yes, that definitely <laughs> sounds like a good path for you. And I'm so glad you did take that path because you have inspired so many people along the way. And I can imagine that you've learned so many things yourself too, through the struggles and through challenging yourself to get to the next level. Absolutely. I mean, I think the most important thing about sports is that sports is such a metaphor for life. And I think that that's why people of all walks of life, all professions, all careers, all, you know, across the globe in one way or another are drawn to athletes. One for inspiration, two for not that they want to be like them necessarily like, oh, I wish I could do that. Yeah, I wish I could throw a football 60 yards too. But it's not the couch quarterback thing that draws people towards sports and and athletics as much as it is the life lessons that are so easy to unfold in that competitive setting. I think that any sport, one way or the other, whatever every athlete goes through in their training and their achievements and their disappointments and their successes and their failures and their growth and, you know, how they started to where they become, I think it's all just such a metaphor for anything that we do in life, anything that we go through in life. Without spilling the beans maybe too quickly, what would you say is the most impactful lesson that sport has taught you? Ooh, (laughs) it's never over till it's over. That's for sure. There's just so much that sport has given me through my life. It's hard to narrow that down to one thing. I mean, the totality of all of my experiences have brought me to this point in my life of who I am, how I am, knowing what I want, knowing what I don't want. And to try to wrap all that up in one bow is pretty hard. But, you know, I I guess one of the other things that I think stands out, because I, I believe that this too is universal, it's you get what you put in. And that go, that goes for your training, that goes for your attitude, that goes for your nutrition, that goes for your habits, that goes for how you live your life, how you articulate yourself and how you show that. If you take shortcuts, you're going to be shortcutted. If you look for the, for the easy fix, you're going to get 
a Band-Aid when you need stitches. It's definitely a reciprocated give and take in how you decide you want to live your life each day. Totally. So maybe let's start Let's start from, from the beginning. I know you, you mentioned this yourself. You started playing a number of sports. You played basketball, racquetball. You even played basketball on the college level. When did you actually start competing? And was it something that your parents encouraged you to do? It seems that with the right track record, you probably were uh, <laughs> uh, prompted probably from an early age, or maybe you were inspired by everybody in the family that this is something that you wanted to do, and there was no question about that. Well, here's how it all got started. And by the way, I'm an only child, and I'm also the oldest of all of my cousins on both sides of the family. Uh, from my mom's side of the family and my dad's, I, I was the firstborn grandchild for either set of grandparents. So my parents joined a health club when I was two, and they stuck me in the nursery. And I figured out how to sneak out. I didn't want to be in the nursery. I wanted to go play stuff. I didn't want to play blocks. I didn't want to, you know, doodle in a coloring book. I wanted to go, I wanted to go be active. So my father was just learning to play racquetball from my godfather, who actually delivered me when I was born. And my godfather got my dad into racquetball with a group of guys that he played with. And my mom would be at the gym and she would do aerobics on her own or she would go do uh, play tennis with um, my godmother <laughs> and a whole group of ladies. So my parents were, you know, even, even as a kid, my parents were always very active and very fit. And like I said, I figured out how to sneak out and I basically walk around the gym until I found which racquetball court my dad was on. And I'd kind of make note like, oh, okay, there's daddy. And then I would go over to the basketball court. And as long as there weren't a ton of people on it and a bunch of guys running full court game or anything, I'd grab a basketball and I'd run down to the basketball court and I would keep an eye on my dad. And when he was in between games and they would all come out of the court and set their stuff down, I'd run up and steal his racket and run onto the racquetball court and get in there and swing around myself. <laughs> and they all just thought it was funny and cute. And okay, kid, give the big people the racket back now. What are you doing out here anyway? Where's your mother? And I think until I started getting good enough that I was starting to get interviewed and have to tell that story my whole life, I think my dad thought my mom was taking me out of the nursery. And I think my mom thought my dad was taking me out of the nursery. I don't think either <laughs> one of them actually realized that I figured out how to sneak out. And I will never divulge that secret because uh, it, it worked and <laughs> made me very much who I am today. So I, I fell in love with basketball and racquetball basically at the age of two. And I also remember watching the Olympics on TV uh, for the first time. And my entire life's goal has been that I, I wanted to be a gold medal Olympian. And um, that's still very much alive in me. I don't see any reason why I can't. I, I very much intend for that to still be a reality for me. So I grew up playing both sports, uh, racquetball and basketball, all through school. I played other sports, too. I played volleyball. I played baseball. I played softball. I played soccer. Um, and I loved everything I did. But racquetball and basketball were the two. I think I liked racquetball because that was mine. None of my classmates were doing that. That was just mine. And basketball, I was just not trying to butter my own toast here, but I, I, I tended to be the best basketball player in the school, every school I went to. So it was so much fun. It wasn't fun because I was good. It was fun because of my teammates. It was fun because I like doing the work. A lot of people don't know this, but I wanted to get up at five o'clock in the morning and go to the gym before school as a six or seven-year-old. My parents actually split when I was around five or six. And that was when my dad decided to get super serious about racquetball. He started taking lessons and going to camps and clinics and trying to get himself better. That was kind of his, I think, therapy in the grieving process of the, the marriage not working out. Um, but I wanted to go to the gym before school. And then I'd go to school and then I would have basketball practice after. And then 
once I got a little older, we actually started a state junior organization for racquetball. And I was the junior president of, of that. And wow. we had practice, we had practice <laughs> twice a week and playing tournaments in the Valley when they, when they came up and we were junior team, Arizona. It was great. But basketball was always what I did in school. Racquetball was kind of what I did, not necessarily in school, but like there was no school team for it. So I always played both as much as possible all day, every day without interfering with my studies. So that's kind of how it got started. And then I had every intention of, of playing professional basketball right out of school. And then I sort of accidentally qualified for the U.S. team a little earlier in my life than I thought I would with racquetball. Almost at the same time, like within the same year, like maybe three months later, we found out that they were starting up a whole new women's pro tour. I remember going to the meeting at one of the national events that we had. The, our national governing body had, had a meeting and said, anyone who wants to come and attend can attend. This, we're going to discuss women's racquetball. And they said, women's racquetball isn't dying, it's dead. So here's what we're going to do to resurrect it. And thus was born the LPRA, the Ladies Professional Racquetball Association. And my dad and I talked about it because I was right at that juncture of turning pro or not turning pro in basketball. And of course I wanted to, but now that I made the US team in racquetball, that was like a really big deal. And my dad and I talked about it and he said, why don't you do this? Just see what you can do if you actually applied yourself to racquetball, because you've always been really good and it's been the thing that you've done on the side. What if you shift your focus to racquetball and put basketball on the back burner for a year and just see, just play one year on the pro tour and see how it goes. And if you don't like it, go back to basketball. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that sounds good. I mean, I'm still being a, a professional athlete. I'm, I'm not going to be out of shape. You know, if I don't like the racquetball mm-hmm. tour, I'll go back and throw my name in the pro basketball hat and see where I land. Well, then I ended up making the finals of my first ever U.S. Open. I ended up finishing my rookie season ranked number three in the world. And I was like, yeah, I can do this for a while. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> the first time you start on the U.S. team, you were ranked number three in the world in the finals. How old were you back then? 21-ish, maybe. But I had never, I mean, that was me like, oh, okay, let me actually practice more. Let me actually put some strategy to what I'm doing, not just rely on my athleticism and, not, you know, mm-hmm. let me put a better head on my shoulders and, and focus on this sport instead of, hey, this is fun. Let's go play. Oh, look, I won. No, like, let's focus on getting better and seeing what I can do against the best in the world. That's how that first season panned out. I don't think I fell out of the top three until my father passed away four years ago and I missed three tournaments. And that's the first time in my entire career that I missed any tournament at all. And um, I lost some points and haven't quite made it back. I haven't quite made those points up yet, ranking wise, but I think I'm still in the top six or something. I I don't know. To be honest, my ranking Mm -hmm. has never mattered to me. I play to get better. I play because I want to continue to grow as an athlete. If I am ranked number one, I'm not going to stop striving to get better. If I'm ranked number 51, I'm not going to stop striving to get better. So my goals don't change based on my ranking. So that's probably why I've never really paid attention to it. In fact, it's kind of a sad story. I was ranked number one in the world for two years in a row. And after that second season, I was at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. It's a beautiful campus. It's, it's incredible. But there's this large block with these Olympic rings kind of out of it. And you can walk inside this block and you can see all these really inspirational and elegant quotes from Olympians dating back to the 1800s. And you know some of the names you'll recognize, some of the names you won't. But just all these really incredible quotes from these athletes. And it says you know the, their name and their sport and how they medaled and in what year of the Olympics did they, did they do that? 
it's pretty emotional for me. I, I get in there and, and it's very touching. And uh, I'm reading these words and I'm like, man, I can't wait to have that feeling standing on the number one podium, getting a gold medal. And then it hit me and I'm like, wait, I actually am the best in the world right now. And I have been for two years and it just now hit me. I was such a baby. I, I cried for an hour. The success that I had been longing for my entire life and working towards that goal, I hit that goal and I was still so focused on my own improvement. Like, okay, did that next. You know, like it, I never even let it sink in the lifelong dream that I had actually accomplished until it was two years after I had done it. It was a very weird feeling. It was a very weird feeling. But at the same time, always learning things about myself, that actually showed me the kind of focus that I have of so focused on that end result that I didn't even acknowledge it when I got it. Wow. Just love your focus on the end result, right? This is what you said, never stopping and always improving. And also, I think what's important to highlight is that you were 21 when you ranked number three. And for some, this could almost be like an opiate, right? It's like, oh my God, I'm on the top of the world. And yet you said, no, this is the time to get to work because I just got started and I'm number three. What else can I achieve? if I put myself to work, right? If I improve my game even more. So that's something that's that's really astonishing, especially since, you know, you had such a great success early on, right? Or right away from, from the start. Yeah. Now I want to go back a little bit and then focus on some of the experiences that that really shaped you. And we've spoken briefly before before this interview. And when I listened to your story, I immediately thought, wow, Rhonda, she's the absolute warrior. She's the absolute competitor. Like you have so much power and confidence within you that probably has been shaped through a lot of those experiences in life. What do you think have been some of the most defining experiences that you've learned from? Well, there's the big elephant in the room, which was when I was assaulted in 2008, um, just before the world championships. That was, that was definitely a big one, but that was less of a defining moment and more of a revealing moment for me. Just the support system that I was surrounded by growing up and the, the things that I was familiar with. For example, I have a theory. I don't know if this is actually true or not. It's just a theory. But people, one of the questions I get asked a lot is, you know, do I ever get nervous? And the answer is no. Sometimes I feel like that's a bad thing. Like sometimes I wish I did get nervous. Like I wish I had like those butterflies in my stomach to get, you know, not that I need the motivation or anything, but like I wish that I kind of had that anxious juice inside that I needed to spend somehow, but I just, I don't get nervous. And I, I, here's my theory. Like I said, my uncle Davey was a pitcher for the Yankees. And, um, right after I was born, I think I was a couple years older, 18 months old. No, I had to be over that maybe two and a half. Anyway, he was playing a doubleheader at mile high stadium in Colorado. And my mom and dad and I were, went up there to go watch him play. And it was on 4th of July. So on July 4th, in between the doubleheader, he went into the clubhouse, got his lounge chair and brought it out to center field, set it up right behind second base and came out to the stands and grabbed me out of my mom's arms and put me in his lounge chair in center field in between a doubleheader at Mile High Stadium while I had my own private fireworks show with 60,000 people in the stands. And I think that I say at least, I don't know if it's true or not, like I said, but I feel like that was my, I'm not afraid of playing in front of a big crowd because I was in front of a bigger crowd on a national holiday <laughs> at a baseball stadium mm -hmm. at the age of two and a half. So, uh, you know, the, the crowd noise doesn't bother me, whether you're cheering for me, whether you're cheering against me, all of it is fuel. It's either fuel if I can use it or I block it out if I, if I can't. I don't let something like that affect me negatively. Also that uh, my father was 
in the army for nearly 40 years. He retired a lieutenant colonel and he was in for, I want to say 38 and a half years or something like that. So being an only child and being an army brat and having not just the athletic discipline, but that military background discipline as well, um, I think really clears up anything from gray to very black and white for me in a lot of situations that hopefully <laughs> limits some vacillation I may have in, in decision-making. So I think a lot of it, like I said, was just, uh, you know, the environment, but not just the environment, but I, I've always had a very strong sense of self, not just knowing who I am, but knowing who I want to be. And as much as possible, not letting outside influences have any corruption or corrosion on ultimately what I want for myself. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing. And I love that experience that you shared when you were two and a half years old. And you may be right, right? That it has prepared you for your future matches and it having this experience has prepared you for, for the future. Now, I'd love to spend some time on talking about some of the principles that maybe your dad has taught you that has helped you become such a strong and centered woman. Sure. Well, the one of them was <laughs> he loved to quote Yoda and say, do or do not, there is no try. <laughs> He was wise, but he always tried to frame it in a joke. You know, I think we've all heard the phrase, you know, mind over matter. Mm-hmm. And he liked, he liked to put his own spin on that. And he said, yeah, mind over matter. I don't mind. You don't matter. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and there are times where that is, that is highly applicable. And, and you know, it's, it's another one of those lovely fatherly gems that you don't appreciate hearing it as a kid. But as you grow older and you re- reflect on it, you're like, damn, he was on something there. All right. I think a lot of it too was work ethic. My father was a very smart man and he was a, he was a pharmacist by trade and uh, very intelligent. And, um, but his work ethic was at the same level and watching the way that he was able to command as a leader in the military. Cause I would go with him to drill. Sometimes I would go with him to anything that I was allowed to go to basically. And as a single parent, you know, at that time, that was kind of the only option. It's not like he's going to get a babysitter because he's got to drive to a base two and a half hours away and do drill at, you know, 3.30 in the morning because he's got formation at six. He would take me with him. And so I would get to see that. So watching the discipline, watching the chain of command, watching how his soldiers responded to him and just watching how brilliantly he led them. Uh, and I'm not saying that as a, as a doting daughter. I'm just, uh, just from an, obso- an observation standpoint, he was compassionate yet firm in his decisions and watching people struggle with, well, I don't know if I want to do this, or I don't know if I should do that, or what, how do I do this? He always had the answer. In case of emergency, break glass. I think we've heard that before too. Breaking glass was when my father was called to respond. So watching his ability to do that, I think I probably subconsciously took that on and grew that seed into my own version of that for myself. That military background and that discipline and the drive and Whatnot has certainly revealed itself multiple times uh, throughout my life, just even in the way that I live, you know, the way that I fold my clothes, which, by the way, nobody made me do that. You know, my dad wasn't the drill sergeant dad that came in and had to bounce a quarter off my bed every day or, you know, made me do push-ups if if the quarter didn't count. (laughs) He was never like that. He never treated me like one of his subordinate soldiers or anything like that. But I took it upon myself to want to be that disciplined. I like that clarity. I like that organization. You know, everything that I do has a purpose. One of the great quotes by Jocko Willing is that discipline equals freedom. And uh, it is so true. Or actually, it is freeing when I know that I do what I 
set myself to do, or even the, the smallest, tiniest habits and daily actions, they can all be an end result of, of a discipline, of a routine, maybe that you even develop. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And I couldn't agree with that quote more. So you mentioned this briefly yourself, right? And in 2008, you were brutally assaulted later at night. And that was the story that many people know about you, but many probably don't know the details about what happened and then uh, how this actually set you up for your future wins. Can you can you tell us more about that? Sure. I think I was number one in the world at that time when that had happened. Our season had just finished. Uh, I had just come home from our national singles championships, which isn't part of the Pro Tour. The Pro Tour finished about a week before that. And ironically, I was already concussed from the tournament a week earlier. I accidentally got hit in the hit in the head with an opponent's racket. It wasn't her fault. It was a fluke accident. That's not something common to racquetball, everyone. Don't feel like you have to avoid my sport. It's it's a beautiful sport to play. It was an accident. So I was living in Hermosa Beach at the time, and it was late at night. We were out of water. And trust me, you do not want to drink LA tap if you don't have to. I knew there was a convenience store right down the street. We live right on the beach. So we we're really, literally on Hermosa Avenue right next to the uh, Hermosa Redondo border there and uh, started walking north on the Strand. And for those that don't know, the Strand is that large piece of two-way sidewalk where you see the the rollerbladers and the runners and people on beach cruisers and then people walking their dog and sipping their lattes uh, in between the row of houses and the sand. That big stretch of sidewalk right there on, on the sand is called the, or between the sand and the houses is called the Strand. So I was walking out on the Strand, heading north, and the reason I was on the Strand instead of on the sidewalk on Hermosa Avenue was because it was late at night, and I didn't want to deal with drunk, stupid people, you know, walking home from a bar. My house faced Hermosa Avenue, so I walked down the stairs onto Hermosa Avenue, walked south about three houses, then came west a few steps to the Strand and started walking north. So I had actually gotten right back up to the property that I just walked out of to my right, and the ocean is to my left. And I saw this guy standing under a streetlight. We noticed each other, and I don't remember who said what's up first and who's, who responded, but you know, it was just one of those cordial, hey, we're the only two people out here. Hey, how you doing? Good, how are you? How was your night? Oh, not too bad, whatever. And then the next thing I know, this guy comes off of the property. There's actually two houses on the, on the property that I lived on. I was the one on the Hermosa side. The house on the uh, Strand side was empty. There was two guys that lived there, but they, neither one of them were home. And this guy comes off of their patio and he just came out of nowhere. I mean, it was dark. I, I didn't see him at all while I'm just kind of exchanging pleasantries with this other guy that I had seen underneath the street lamp. This guy comes out of nowhere and he kind of gets in my face and he says, what the fuck did you say to my boy? And I was like, whoa nothing, man. I'm just on my way. You guys have a good night. And I'm just trying not to escalate because I don't know what this guy's problem is. I didn't know that they knew each other until he said that. Like It was just kind of a weird, whoa, where did that come from? So I continue walking and I'm hoping and thinking that I diffused the situation and I didn't hear anything until the last second I heard the last couple of footsteps. And before I could even turn around, I just heard, bam, and I felt the right side of my face shift over to the left side of my face. And before I could even process what was happening, I took another shot from the left side now. I don't know, I probably took 10, 12, maybe more, I don't know, 10, 12 shots to my face in my head. And I was trying to get away and I just kind of covered my head the way that a boxer would. And I squirreled away and I turned around and I squared up right near that street lamp that uh, that first guy was standing next to. And I turned around and I squared up. And, I, and when I turned around, that's when I saw that they were both wearing brass knuckles. And um, 
there was a little bit of a verbal, not so much exchange, but I was attacked verbally again from the one that had come off the patio. The other guy that I had seen at first under the light, he seemed more freaked out and he kept saying, come on, man, let's go, let's go. And the other guy was, you know, spewing all kinds of verbal hostility my way. And my immediate thought when I turned around was, I want to hit back, but I have worlds in six weeks and I don't want to break my hand on your dumb fucking face and not be able to go play for Team USA. So I'm not going to swing unless I have to. That was like, I mean, I'm literally getting blitz attacked from behind. I managed to turn around, square up. And my first thought is I have worlds. I have to be careful. And I thought I had diffused the situation after, you know, a little more verbal stuff going on, you know, between them and they kind of took off and ran the other direction. In the meantime, I could feel the left side of my face. My eye was swelling shut. I didn't want them to know that all of this happened kind of like right in front of my place. Like I could have walked 20 feet east and been at my front door. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want them to know that I lived there. So I started walking south again. I was going to take the long way home, just like I took the long way to get to the strand when I left the house. And as I'm walking away, I have my my right hand over the whole right side of my face because I know this is going to sound silly, but I thought my eyeball was going to fall out. And when I was walking, all I could think of was that first Pirates of the Caribbean movie where that one pirate had that wooden eye that kept falling out the whole time and it's rolling around the deck of the ship. Every time the wave hits, it rolls in a different direction and whatnot. And I was just thinking, I'm like, oh my God, if this falls out, it's going to be all sandy and how am I going to get it back in? And that's just going to be gross. And, you know, so I, it, was, it was a dumb thought, but it's, it's amusing to reflect on now. But yeah, I had my hand over my face because I was afraid my eyeball was going to fall out. And then uh, I heard something and I turned around and with my right hand still covering <clears throat> that side of my face, I turn around and I see that evil one, the one who started the hitting, the one that came off the patio. I saw him running at me with his fist up with the brass knuckles on like he was running at me to Superman punch me or something. And that was when I actually saw my own blood on the brass knuckles. And he's running at me like he's going to Superman punch me. And I stop and I leave my right hand on my face and I put my left hand out in front of me. And I said, dude, just stop, just stop. And I left my hand out there. And I did that for two reasons. One, I wanted to give him that false sense of, oh, okay. You're a big man on campus. Don't hurt me. I'm cowering. You win. Just stay over there. Like I wanted him to have that false sense of that. I'm fearful of him, which for some reason, now that I actually say that I, for some reason I wasn't. But I put my hand and I said, dude, just stop, just stop. And I put, I left it out there. And the second reason was because I have no depth perception. <laughs> I have one good eye. I'm leaving my hand out here so that I can feel if he tries to come at me so that that can register in my mind before my brain can pick it up. If I'm just trying to use my one eye, I have no depth perception. I can't really tell how close he is to me. So <clears throat> at that point, he put his fist down. He didn't Superman punch me, but like he had it ready. Like he still had it cocked up by his shoulder. And he looked me up and down and he goes, fuck you, bitch. I just got out of prison. You think I give a shit? Fuck you. I'll kill you right here, bitch. I don't give a shit. And at that point, I dropped my right hand to my side, stood my ground. And I said, okay, then go ahead. Go ahead. I'm right here. Kill me. Go ahead. Kill me. And in my mind, I didn't say any of this out loud. And I certainly wasn't acting like this because the way that I said it to you just now is exactly the way that I said it to him. But in my mind, I'm thinking, you came at me two on one from behind, you chicken shit coward. That's not going to happen again. We're face to face now. You're going to threaten my life now. I don't care that you're a guy. I don't care that you have a weapon. I don't care that you're bigger than me. 
I hit for a living and I know how to generate force. And you might very well kill me tonight. And that's okay because I will hurt you on the way down. So if we're going to do this, then let's go. And that was kind of what, I guess, what was in my mind was just that like, all right, well, if this is how it goes, then you're going to get hurt too. So that's not the type of thing that anyone, I don't think ever really plans for. You know, I mean, I, I got blitz attacked in the public place and then some guy came after me for seconds and then he threatens to kill me on the spot. I mean, that's just not something that, you know, that's not like looking both ways before you cross the street. Like you don't learn how to deal with a situation like that really in most circles of life. But it was the weirdest conclusion to a very weird few minutes of my life. He looked me up and down, kind of smirked and giggled and took off running in the other direction. And I'd seen that before. So I'm like, okay, is this deja vu or are we actually done now? And then when I realized, okay, we're actually done now, I'm like, really? That's it? That's how this is going to end? Okay. Didn't think anything of it really at all. The only thing that was really on my mind was, I, like I said, I had already been to the hospital once that week for a concussion that I had gotten at, at National Singles. And I had a prescription that I had no intention of taking because I don't like to take pills of any kind. I don't like to take Advil. I don't like to take Tylenol. I don't, I don't like to take anything, which is, again, the irony. My father was a pharmacist. But I remember walking home again with my, my hand on my face and just thinking like, man, I hope I still have that prescription laying around in a bag that was still stapled because I never intended to use it because this is going to be sore in the morning. Never occurred to me to call 911. Never occurred to me the extent of you know, the damage that I sustained. Like none of that ever occurred to me. And uh, I just walked upstairs and my roommate and her friend, it was her friend's birthday. Uh, so they were slightly alcoholed. They had had some wine, but they were just, you know, sitting there watching TV. But I walked in, neither one of them really paid me much mind. I just walked in and started looking for that, uh, for that bag with a prescription in it. And I don't know what I looked like, but my roommate came around the corner and immediately, oh my God, what happened? I'm like, I got hit. <laughs> oh my God, who hit you? She's like, I don't know, two guys. Why? I'm like, I don't know. Wrong place, wrong time. She's like, oh my God. In the meantime, her friend had called 911. I didn't even know this was happening. Paramedics and fire department got there within like 2.2 seconds. Like it seemed instantaneous that I heard the sirens outside and uh, they loaded me up onto a stretcher against all of my objections that, I'm, dude, I'm fine. I can walk down the stairs. And they took me off to a little company of Mary Hospital in Torrance, California. And that was probably the most amazing medical facility I had ever been in. The care was top shelf. I mean, down to, you know, the nurses that came in to check and see if, you know, my ice cubes melted, you know, like everyone was extremely kind, extremely compassionate and extremely good at what they did in, in every position and very communicative as well. So I was in the, uh, in the emergency room for what felt like forever. I, I have no idea. They took me back for all kinds of scans, x-ray, MRI, uh, CAT scan. They had a, an ophthalmologist that had to come in to specifically check up on the structural damage to my eye. That was an examination that I hope I never have to go through again because that was, that was the worst part of it. Once we actually had some information, and I'll never forget this, this nurse walked in with my chart and she just kind of breezes in and she's like, hi, Ms. Racich. Okay, hi. We got your results back. It looks like you've got several facial fractures. So we're going to get you in touch with a couple of plastic surgeons. They're going to set that up with you. They'll be in here shortly. And uh, let us know if you have any questions. And then she just walks off. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. She just breezed in here like she was saying, hey, can you add milk to the shopping list? Like, wait, <laughs> come back, rewind that. Can you run that by me again? Facial fractures, reconstructive surgery. Wait, what? Once we were armed with that information, my roommate went uh, out of the ER, went down the hall to call my mom and tell my mom what happened. 
And for me to this day, no matter what happened to me before and after this, that was the worst part of the entire experience for me because I could hear my mother's shriek at the other end of the phone. And that is something that I can't unhear. And it breaks my heart every time I think about the agony that she must have been in when she got that news. And I don't know, they, they only talked very briefly. And after that, she came in and handed the phone to me and put my mom on the phone. And my poor mother was just absolutely hysterical. And at that point, I knew that I had to make sure that she knew that I was not a victim. I'm like, mom, I'm fine. Stop, it, like, I, I didn't say stop crying because I know that that's just not realistic. But I was like, mom, really, I'm fine. They didn't rape me. They didn't rob me. They didn't kill me. At the end of the day, I just took some shots to the face and I'm going to be okay. It's all right. It's fine. Like, I'm okay. Please take comfort in knowing that like, I'm really okay. She obviously jumped on the very first flight. She contacted my dad and my dad was on the very first flight that he could get on. They both stayed with me in California for, I think at least two, I think my dad was there for two weeks because that was as much time as work would allow him to get off before he had to come back and then take more time off. And I think my mom stayed for the whole month um, or at least most of it, maybe three weeks. I don't know. Time is kind of a blur. I was heavily medicated after the surgery. But anyway, both of my parents showed up within the next 24 hours. I got jumped on June 1st and they didn't schedule the reconstructive surgery until June 11th because uh, the swelling was so bad. And I had facial reconstructive surgery, which was supposed to take, I think, four to five hours. And mine ended up taking over 12 because they didn't realize how bad the damage was until they opened me up and got in there. And I now have five titanium plates in my face. I do beep at the airport sometimes. My nerves are shredded. So my daily pain experience on a scale of one to 10 is at a 10 every single day. The best day that I have had since then is an eight. So my pain has been at an eight, nine, or 10 pretty much the whole time. Wow. It does affect me. I tried to hide it for a long time. Then I stopped trying. I just got so good at not acknowledging how much pain I'm in that if I didn't tell you, you wouldn't notice. But once you know what happened to me, you can actually look at me candidly and you can see when I'm not paying attention about you know, trying to look okay. I do have a lot of photosensitivity. The structure of the muscles behind my eye that are supposed to make my eye function correctly were damaged to the point that um, it affects my vision quite a bit because my, we'll, we'll call it my good eye, <laughs> my good eye can only accommodate and compensate for the bad eye so much and it gets tired. And when it gets tired, then they both go, you know, it's hard to see out of both of them because one's tired of doing the work of two. There's been a handful of days, percentage wise, it's, it's just a handful where on a scale of one to 10, my pain is about a 70. And those are the days that I, it, it literally hurts so bad. I can't get out of bed. It hurts to talk. It hurts to blink. It hurts to eat. To this day, depending on what I eat, I have to chew almost everything on the left side of my of my mouth. I had six cracked teeth. They had broken my, uh, they shattered my orbital, my cheekbone, part of my jaw, and just a whole lot of neurological stuff going on in there as well. But to me, it's my daily blessing. It's my daily reminder of how much I have to be thankful for. If I had that night to do over and I could change one thing, the only thing I would change if it was in my power too is would be that my family didn't ache so bad for for what they had to go through hearing that news. It was such an extraordinary experience and I learned so much about myself 
in that experience. And I learned so much about things around me that I couldn't have been aware of otherwise that I'm, I'm just so tremendously grateful for. I wouldn't wish that experience upon anyone ever, but I wouldn't wish that it didn't happen to me because of, of how much I have uh, to be thankful for from it. Wow. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that so openly and with just so much detail for the listeners to really know what, what happened and how you responded. That to me is just so incredible. And it is just such a testament to what a grounded person and what a champion you have been already before you got attacked. And you said that, right? You were already number one at that time. So this really tells me like you've cultivated that mental resilience, but even in that moment, you were really able to access it. And then that shows so much courage and strength. And you are in such a deep pain, but you are here, you're among us. And this is really what, what matters. And also that this hasn't set you down on your knees, but it has made you even more victorious. So tell us what happened after the surgery. So after the surgery, uh, I was obviously in the hospital for a few more days before I got released. And I, they sent me home with a walker. There was nothing wrong with my legs, but they sent me home with a walker because I was so heavily medicated. I was on six different medications. I was on Vicodin, Dilaudid, Toradol, Lorazepam, something else. And I don't even remember. Um, I, it was very painful. Uh, I, I wasn't allowed to sleep laying down. I had to try to sleep sitting up, which let's be real. That's not going to happen. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat solid food. This happened June 1st. I couldn't actually try to eat solid food again until mid-October. So everything was mashed potatoes, protein shakes, jello, and soup. And I think I've had enough mashed potatoes for the rest of my life, but nothing but soft foods or, or something through a straw. So I lost 37 pounds. I mean, I, I think I weighed in the high 140s. My, it's, it's always been my goal to weigh 150. And I, I think I got close. And then I dropped down to, I think, 113 or 114, something like that. Wow. Um, yeah, I, I lost the, uh, at least 37 pounds the last I remember. I, it, was, it was hard trying to gain it back. I still haven't gained it all the way back. I still have yet to hit the weight that I was at before I got jumped. But the biggest thing for me was the world championships because through all of this, like it's still never, it was never even a possibility to me that I wouldn't go. And like you were just talking about, you know, the, the resilience and the way that I responded and all of that, uh, which, which I, I really appreciate. But like I said, some of the things that I learned about myself was um, like, I know my fight or flight response, fight, flight or freeze. I did none of the above. I turned around, squared up and evaluated. I never ran. I never screamed or cried for help. I didn't escalate the situation if I didn't have to. And at one point, I didn't realize this till my lawyer pointed it out to me last year. Apparently, I was at a point where I was okay with dying in that moment. Not that I surrendered to it, but if I was going to die, like I was okay with that. Like I didn't, I didn't whimper. I didn't plead for my life. I didn't, I didn't cry and beg. It just, it was just kind of like, okay, well, if this is the end, this is how it's going to go. Like it, for some some reason, I still felt like even if I am going to die at your hands in this moment, it's still going to be on my terms. You know, like I'm going to go down swinging. I'm going to hurt you in the process. I'm going to try to take you down with me, or you know, how, I don't know. None of that was conscious at all. Like I never even considered the fact that I might die in that moment, but apparently the way I responded, I must've been okay with it. When I look back on the experience, the craziest parts of it is, uh, I got, I got my face rearranged. I got my face shattered. I didn't cry. I got my life threatened. I didn't cry. Went to the hospital. 
heard my parents on the phone, broke my heart. I, I didn't cry. I felt like I couldn't. I couldn't let, I mean, my mom was hysterical enough. I don't need her to hear me crying too. So plus it probably hurt really bad. I didn't cry. I have facial reconstructive surgery that took three times as long as it was supposed to. I didn't cry. But when I got home from the hospital and I saw the first ginormous bouquet of flowers that was the most exquisite thing I've ever seen in a floral arrangement, I lost it. I was prepared to suffer, I guess, with all of that. But I wasn't prepared for the outpouring of love and support and kindness and well wishes and love and light that came my way. I wasn't prepared for the humility that I was hit with when people from across the globe, people I knew and people that I'd never met, never heard of, were reaching out, sending their support and trying to be involved in any way they possibly could for me to know that I was loved and they, and they wanted me to heal quickly. I wasn't prepared for that. And emotionally, that, that hit me hard. And that was, you know, my first few days at home was adjusting to not being able to sleep, not being able to get around, not being able to eat anything but liquids and baby food, basically. And, um, you know, trying to figure out okay, well, I still have worlds in, you know, four and a half weeks now. So I got to get ready. Well, then I get the the phone call from our U.S. team head coach at the time. And he, uh, he had a long talk with me and asked me how I was doing and could they do anything for me? And did I need anything? And everyone's sending their best. And then he finishes up the phone call with, well, you know, we're going to play our asses off out there for you, kiddo. We'll be thinking of you. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm coming. What do you mean you're going to play your asses off for me? I'm going to play my ass off for you too. Like, what are you talking about? And he just laughed and he's like, you're not going. I'm like, the hell I'm not. And in that moment, that was the first time that I felt defeated. That was the first time, like I felt a strong, severe depression, almost swallow me whole in that moment. You know, just feeling like, don't you dare take this away from me. Worlds is the reason I didn't hit back. Worlds is the reason why I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do right now so that I can be ready to go to Worlds. And it wasn't ego-driven. I felt like, I genuinely felt like I could still be a contributing member to the team. And I still felt like even in my condition, I'm still your best bet to play in the spot that I had earned for my country. It devastated me, the thought that I might not go to Worlds, which was in Ireland that year. So it took me a few days of crying in my Cheerios about that. And then finally I realized that, hold on, all I can do is what's up to me. And so I sent him an email and I copied the board on it as well. I said, dear Dave, apparently whether or not I go to Worlds is not up to me, but whether or not I am ready for Worlds is entirely up to me. So you do whatever you feel like you need to do for the team's best interest on your end. Have your meetings, have your conference calls with the board. You guys do what you need to do. Meanwhile, I'm going to be over here getting ready to be the world champion. So just so you know, whether I go to Worlds or not, I will be ready to be the world champion by July 27th, because that was the day that our flight was supposed to leave for Ireland. And I hit send. And once I sent that email, I had to release all expectations of anything that might come from it. I had to release the expectation of going. I had to release the expectation of not going. I just had to put my head down and go about my business of, of healing and of trying to get myself ready because I still fully intended to you know, put my money where my mouth was and be ready to go to Worlds and win. In the meantime, I think it was about 10 days later, it was the very end of June. My mom came back out to California to drive me home back to Phoenix. And I got with my trainer, Jim, for 
about 10 days and he put me through a workout and literally all I could do was 10 sets of one step ups, basically like putting your foot on one step, coming up and then going back down. That's literally all I could do. And I was beat. And I remember having a little bit of trepidation in that moment thinking like, man, did I really just put my foot in my mouth? Like I can't even do step ups right now. And I'm gassed. Like I have to go home and take my meds and take a nap now. But I kept after it. And then um, a couple of weeks later, there was a, actually it was mid July. There was an outdoor tournament in Huntington Beach. And I had to wear, you know, one of those clear plastic face masks that was custom made for me for my specific to my injuries and what I needed protection wise out of it. And um, I went out there and I signed up for three divisions and I was actually pissed that I didn't win all three. I might've won one. I don't even remember. Like I said, heavily medicated, Um, (laughs) but I did play and I was actually upset with myself. I was disappointed in myself that I didn't win all three divisions. And in the meantime, the U S national team coach had driven down uh, from Northern California to watch me play in that and kind of evaluate me. And he said, he's like, wow, you're doing a lot better than I expected. And we continued to discuss, you know, whether or not I would go. And I guess the one thing I said to him that really struck him and made him kind of see it my way and vote for me to be able to go was I said, Dave, I don't need my face to hit the ball. The rest of my, my arms and legs, my limbs, my head, everything still works that I can play this game. And he goes, yeah, but what if you get hit? And I said, that's what the mask is for. What if I don't? I'm not looking at the what if negatives. I'm looking at all the what if positives. And uh, ultimately, he put his uh, two cents into the board saying that, you know, he, he respected the progress I had made and that uh, if, if I wanted to go, it was still my spot and I should be able to go. And the board agreed. And it was a pretty epic uh, feeling to know that I was going to get to go to Worlds. But I voluntarily ceased all pain medications on July 5th. and. I think we left. Yep. We left for, for worlds on, on the 27th. And then we started, we actually started the championships two days later. So basically 65 days after being attacked and 54 days after facial reconstructive surgery, 29 days after voluntarily ceasing all pain medications, I won my first world championship without losing a single game and without (laughs) being able to eat solid food. (laughs) That's so incredible. That's so incredible. Just everything that you shared with us. What a great story and and a fantastic example for for others to follow and use as an inspiration when we struggle with our day-to-day lives or when we are climbing our own ladders of success and um, working to win our own championships. You said you were 29 days without any pain medications. How did that feel for you? Like, How did you get past that pain? Excruciating. I mean, it's still excruciating. The whole thing of it was the medication really started messing with me in my mind. And I I got to a point where, you know, I kind of stopped being able to trust what was real and what wasn't. And this was against medical advice. They all told me like, you can't stop cold turkey. I'm like, watch me. Because I just (laughs) I I just made the choice for myself. I'm like, I would rather feel the pain than be the zombie. Mm -hmm. I don't recognize myself inside right now. And that's not serving me whatever I was on, I never took it again. I don't even remember how much of a difference in pain there was, probably because it's still at a 10 to this day. (laughs) I don't remember exactly, you know, what the threshold was for the change. But like I said, I needed the brain fog to clear up. Mm -hmm. I didn't like not feeling like myself. I didn't 
like I said, the way the best way to describe it is that I would rather feel the pain than be the zombie because that's exactly what I was when I was on it. And that wasn't that wasn't doing me any good. So at that moment, did you stop taking any medication? And then even to this day, are you taking any any medications against pain? No. Completely med free. Completely med free. Wow. And dealing with such an injury and I imagine you probably have tried maybe different techniques to manage your pain, right? Or is that something that you've researched and, right? What do you do to make it maybe a little bit more manageable? No, it's just something that I've accepted to live with. Like, mm -hmm. you know, the roommate that'll never leave. I had several minor subsequent surgeries that were in an effort to mitigate pain management, but none of them worked. The scariest one was one that they did like down on like a nerve cluster in my neck to try to have some effect on the shredded nerves in my face. And that, that, after that one, I'm just like, all right, no more. I'm done. If it's going to hurt, it's going to hurt. Just let it be. I don't know. I, I, again, a little bit of brain fog here, but I think I probably had maybe six or seven of those types of subsequent surgeries after the major reconstruction. And some of them were directed at, at pain management, but none of it ever made a difference. It just put a new hole in me somewhere else. That, now that one hurts too. Mm -hmm. So many of us go through surgeries and we are told, right, this is what your life looks like now, or this is what you have to accept. And you're basically showing an example to others that you don't have to live the way others prescribe you. Even if they have the best intentions in mind, you get to define your life, even if it means that it's going to hurt, but then it will give you this clarity of thinking, right, that you want, or this sense of self that is what you define with. So you don't have to compromise some of the key things in your life, which is, I think, is one of the messages that, that I'm hearing from your story, from, from the lessons. Absolutely. And, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, the biggest lesson that I got, and again, this is the thing that stands out to me for why I am able to embrace my pain on a daily basis the way that I do is because I'm, I really am thankful for it because the biggest lesson, the biggest aha moment, the biggest gift that I was given out of that experience is that nothing happens to you, it happens for you. And I think that that is like the, the golden phrase that stands out to me that I learned from that. And when you think of anything in your life that has happened one way or the other, if you look through it with that lens, it can really shift your perspective on the revealing a, a, a certain degree of truth about those experiences that you may not have otherwise seen unless you look at it through that lens. But what that experience gave me was, again, I learned so many things about myself that I couldn't have possibly known otherwise that I'm grateful for. I learned how many people I had touched worldwide without even ever knowing it until they had a reason to reach out to me and announce themselves by, by just wishing me well and seeing if I'm okay and sending me love and care and concern. Like I said, that was something that I was not prepared for. I was not emotionally prepared for the outpouring of love and support that I got from around the globe. That blew me away. I couldn't keep up with it. I couldn't keep up with the thank you responses that I was trying to generate, you know, to let every single person know how much I appreciated their care and concern. That, like, that, that just blew me away. But that experience has given me a platform to be able to speak from a place of you know, this is something that I've been through. It didn't change me. It could have. It could have ended my career. It could have ended my life. It could have ended my life as I know it in so many ways. But I didn't let it. I 
chose my responses at every turn, even instinctively when I was in the middle of getting attacked, I chose my responses. And there's an innate fortitude in that, that I can't say that, oh, I got it from this because I honestly feel like I was born with it. But here's the thing. I feel like every single human being is born with it. It's just a matter of whether or not they ever actually tap into it or if they ever have to. And if they do have to, do they know where to find it? It's just one of those things. Like I, I really, truly believe that every single human being on earth is born with that innate strength and fortitude and resilience within us. It's just a matter if we choose to be a victim of circumstance or be the captain of the ship and decide the actions that we will or won't take in our progression through life. I will never lose that phrase and it never loses meaning for me because it is so applicable to me every single day. Like I said, that's why I love, maybe love is a strong word. I'm grateful and thankful for, you know, my daily reminder, my daily pain, my, my daily tap on the shoulder that, Hey, you're alive because you're still feeling this. And because you're still feeling this, you have all of this to be grateful for. And because you have all of this to be grateful for, don't ever lose the lessons that you gained from this experience. And the biggest one and, you know, big, bright, bold letters is that nothing happens to you. It happens for you. I don't know that I would be able to be on this podcast with you if I didn't have that experience to back up the lessons that I learned through it in, in my own life experiences in order to channel that experience and in my efforts to reach as many people as I can to help as many people as I can might look completely different. Well, This was just unbelievable. Life happens for you, not to you. You're the captain of your ship. Thank you so much for sharing. This has been so powerful. I know you mentioned it. You wanted me to ask you how you managed to recover so quickly before you got to the worlds. Is, is that something you want to share a little bit more about? Yeah. Visualization. I wasn't able to walk. They gave me a walker because I was so heavily medicated. And in truth, I couldn't stand up and walk myself to the bathroom if I had to go. Like I needed help. I was in a walker in a very thin hallway and I still managed to fall down. <laughs> you know, like it was, it was not a good physical situation. So here I am saying that I'm going to be ready for worlds and I can't even walk myself to the restroom in my own house. There was, there was a, a few minutes of scary trepidation and doubt there a little bit, but visualization really is truly powerful. When you visualize correctly, Your subconscious can't tell the difference between a strong and powerful visualization and a memory. So not being able to physically do anything. I spent hours a day. I would watch footage. I would watch matches of myself. I would watch matches of my opponents. I would visualize an entire practice session on the court. I would visualize going to the gym and lifting. I would visualize a run or a hike or a bike ride. And I'll tell you real quick, the keys to visualization is making it as real as possible. How do you do that? Use all your senses, smell, touch, taste, sight, all of your senses that you rely upon unconsciously as you go about your day, use them as specifically as possible in visualization. So for example, if I'm going to pretend I'm walking into the court for a practice session, I envision myself arriving at the court, setting down my bag, getting out my equipment in the specific order, tying my shoes, knowing how tight I tied them, knowing how the laces feel between my fingers stepping onto the court, hearing the echo, hearing the creak of the wood beneath my feet, knowing if I'm on a glass court or, or a panel court. So I know what the door sounds like when I shut it, what kind of latch is on that door. Um, I can feel the texture of the ball in my hand. I can smell the rubber of the ball when I hold it up to my nose. I can feel my glove on my hand. I can feel the racket in my hand and my glove and knowing what kind of grip I have. I can tell you how tight my strings are, the tension 
can tell you what racket I'm using, can tell you how the ball echoes when I bounce it out, out of my hand on the floor, can tell you the tremendous booming echo when I hit a forehand down the line. And so when you can be that specific with your execution of the visualization, for it, make it as real as possible for as long as possible, it will physically affect your body at the cellular level because the body follows the mind. So when, since I couldn't condition my body, I put a whole lot of extra time and effort into conditioning my mind. And by the time I got to Ireland for Worlds, my body followed. Wow. The body follows the mind. That's a great takeaway. Rhonda, thank you so much. This has been so eye-opening in so many different ways. Maybe to wrap this up today, you spend a lot of time speaking and engaging with different audiences around the world to share your story, but more than that, to help them see that uh, there's always so much more they can do and that they are not victims, but that they are victors. So what is it that you're focused on today? What keeps you excited, energized? Oh, well, well, personally, what keeps me excited and energized is that I know I'm still improving as an athlete, as a person, as a human being. I'm constantly evolving in, in a trajectory that I set for myself, and I'm continuing along that journey. And, I, and I'm, I'm grateful for every, every day that I have the opportunity to do that. And, you know, if you want me to wrap up with a, with a couple of things, again, more, more gems, more lessons that I've learned throughout all of this. And again, these are things that can be applied to any role in life. You don't have to be a professional athlete. You don't have to be even a weekend warrior athlete. You can, you know, whether you're in sales, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're, you know, the, the HBIC or you're just starting, you know, in the mailroom or, or all in between, like any path you choose for yourself in your life. I just got a, a few words of wisdom that I, I would be remiss if I, if I didn't include these, because these are things that have continued to help and inspire me along my way as well. And one of those is a very good friend of mine who passed away tragically in a motorcycle accident in another country. He and I were actually just about to kind of start this joint project together to try to reach people as well just before that happened. And, and one of the things that we had talked about in our last conversation the day before he passed was that uh, he would always used to say, sometimes you just have to jump and grow wings on the way down. And to me, what that displays is, is you might not have control, but it's about being able to surrender the control and still have faith and trust in yourself. Sometimes you just got to jump and grow wings on the way down. And another way of looking at that is, you know, so many people get caught up in the what ifs and all the negativity that tends to follow those two words. But what if you flip that around to the other side of that coin? Like what if, you know, instead, well, what's the worst that could happen? Well, what if your question is every time instead of that is what's the best that could happen? And then what if you were able to generate that list and that list was longer than what if the worst thing could happen if you're able to see the possibilities beyond the obstacles? I noticed too that this is uh, your podcast here is, is about, uh, you know, Fearless Warrior. I think you and I had mentioned briefly before, you know, what, what does being a warrior mean to me? And I think my answer is probably a little bit opposite of what most people would expect me to say. But to me, a warrior is not about being perfect. It's not about victory. And it's not about invulnerability. Being a warrior is about absolute vulnerability because that's, that's the only true courage. You can choose to be a victim or anything else that you want to be. And it's that power of choice that is in itself empowering. And that doesn't have to look the same for everybody. It's not going to look the same for it. That's not a one size fits all experience. But if you can at least just kind of take those gems and apply them to 
what your goals are, what your desires are, what's stopping you from getting them. And how can you, how can you step on the throat of those obstacles and press on? Rhonda, this is just unbelievable. I love it. Warrior is being absolutely vulnerable. On it's uh, the only true courage, right? When we are vulnerable. I love the first quote you shared. Sometimes you have to jump and grow your wings on the way down. I absolutely yeah. love that. And I think it's something I'm trying to do more of now and will do more of now, even going forward now that I've heard it. Because that's honestly the only way to do it, especially when you're starting something new, you're starting a new venture and you don't know everything. And if you wait for everything to be perfect, then you'll never start or you'll, your progress will be so slow that everybody else will outpace you. Yeah. And, and let me be clear. This isn't about being fearless. It's about acknowledging your fears and using them as your fuel. It's about, mm-hmm. about acknowledging that, yeah, it's okay to be afraid. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to quote one of the Karate Kids. I think it was Karate Kid 3. He said, it's okay, lose to opponent, must not lose to fear. And I think so many of us let fear become that overwhelming opponent that we're like, oh, okay, well, I'm just not even going to play in that sandbox because what if, again, with all the, all the, you know, what if bad things happen? But it's okay to be afraid. It's what you do with it. It's what you do with that fear. And I mean, I'm saying that even, even at a, a basic biological survival le- level, there's a reason why we have survival instincts. There's a reason why our hearts race, our muscles tighten, our fast twitch. There's, you know, there's a reason why your pupils dilate. There's a reason why, you know, if, when I'm in that situation of getting attacked and I'm getting barraged by haymakers with brass knuckles, you know, I didn't have time to sit and think and process what's going on and decide how to respond. My reflex was to put my arms up to protect myself. That was a reflex. That's a survival mechanism. I didn't have to think about that. It was a survival mechanism because, oh, this hurts. I don't want this to happen anymore. How can I make it stop? Like you don't go through all those all those thought processes when something's like that happening. Our caveman ancestors, when they were getting chased in the fields by a tiger, we have the ability to run faster than we walk for a reason. I mean, we have these fearful instincts ingrained in our DNA to serve a purpose. But so often we're so afraid of so many things. And most of what we're afraid of is the unknown. But if you, if you take those survival instincts, you take that application of fear and turn that into fuel, that delivers a power that you don't have otherwise. I mean, think about it. If I said, hey, let's go for a run. And I said, okay, let's see who gets to the corner fastest. Eh, maybe you'll try your hardest. Maybe you won't. Is there really any consequence if you don't? No. If a giant Bengal tiger is chasing you down that same street and you got to get to the corner first to make sure that your life is is not in danger, you think you're going to run faster? Hell yeah. There's a reason for that. Those fearful instincts are there on purpose. They're designed to increase your power. But instead, we run away from fear or we deny it or we try to diffuse it somehow instead of acknowledging that it's there and finding out a way to use it to fuel us. Absolutely. And you're right, even though this podcast is called Fearless Warrior, but at the end, it's about so much more. You need to actually become almost your best friend with your fear and really understand where it's coming from. And as you said, use it as fuel, even though you're afraid you do it anyway. Right. Rhonda, thank you so much for spending um, some time with us today. I so much appreciate it. Now, before we, before we go, where can people find you? How can they learn more about what you're up to? If they would like to reach out directly, uh, you can reach me at rr23speaks at gmail.com. I'm also on Instagram. Uh, I think it's Rhonda Rocks 23 
and on Twitter as Ron Deezy, R-O-N-D-E-E-Z-E-E. And I have Facebook, but I'm locked out. So don't try to reach me through Facebook because I won't see it. It still exists, but I can't get into it. Long story, another time. <laughs> but mm -hmm. uh, Instagram. Oh, I'm also on LinkedIn. Uh, should be able to just look up my name on LinkedIn. LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, or directly at the Gmail. Excellent. Rondo, thank you so much for your time. This was absolutely phenomenal. And I only wish you the best. There is so much more that you probably have to accomplish or that is in front of you. I, I can definitely see you making so much more impact on the world. And I'm so glad we got a chance to meet. I am too. Thank you so much. I had a great time chatting with you. And, uh, and thanks for making me think about some things that I've never had to think about before. I love when that happens. Everybody, uh, thank you for listening. If you heard Rhonda's episode, please go and share it with others. I can imagine there are hundreds of people out there or maybe five, 10 friends that you know that this would resonate with. Please go share it because at the end, you are the captain of your ship and you determine your own success, your own life and where your life goes. Thank you, everybody. And we'll be back next week. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate you for spending some time with me and most of all, for investing time in yourself. If you found value in this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our episodes. This will greatly help us spread the word and help others find it more easily. If you want to know more about what I'm up to, you can find me on Instagram at Denny Timras. Shoot me a note and let me know what you thought of today's conversation. I always welcome any feedback or questions. Remember, now that you're here, you're part of a tribe. In this tribe, we care for each other. We lift each other up as well as share the raw, honest, unpolished truth that we often need to hear. So before you go, think about the next best action you can take to get you on your path to success. Don't wait for tomorrow. Make a commitment and do it now. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week. Until then, have a great day.